Good evening, listeners. It's October 22nd, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lillian Paget-Cobb. And I'm Scott Classic. Here at Oregon State University, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and the personal stories of one of these students each week. So if you're a graduate student here at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, we're always looking for uh, sign-ups for new guests. Um, or if you just want to find out more about all the awesome research going on here at Oregon State, um, you can check out our blog. We have a blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests. We've got um, a post that we make each week for each guest, and then we also have links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Andy Hahn from the School of History, Philosophy, and Religion. Andy's research relates to the history of science, and he is specifically studying the influence of the writer and naturalist Goethe on the field of plant morphology. Hi, Andy. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about what it is you do in um, the School of History? Uh, So my research focuses specifically on, like you said, the impact of uh, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, uh, who was a late 18th, early 19th century German poet, writer, dramatist, who also did a bit of science. Uh, His main focus was on color theory and uh, he did a little bit of biology as well. So I focus specifically on his, the influence of his work in botany on uh, specific 20th century botanist and uh, morphologist within biology. So it's really cool. Um, so I think most of us, if we are familiar with Goethe at all, it would be through um, his writings, most likely. Sure, yeah. So um, could you be maybe just really quickly uh, talk about a couple of his more notable works? Okay. Uh, probably the most familiar that Americans would be familiar with is Stars of Young Werther, which I think gets assigned a lot, either high school, college level. Uh, so that kind of brought Goethe to inspired his rise to fame. Uh, it was uh, a short little novel, but ended in the unfortunate suicide of the main character. Um, and the reason, and this influenced kind of a rash of suicides across Europe and Northern Africa, even. So this kind of really put Goethe on the map in a really unfortunate sort of way. Wow. And then later on, he his major work was uh, his interpretation of Faust, which is kind of the classic tale of selling your soul to the devil for this, for knowledge, basically, about the world. Sure. So I'm interested in this idea of Goethe as both a scientist and a writer, and it seems like that's not something that you encounter as frequently anymore. But was this more, was the climate of the time more conducive to this sort of um, relationship between science and writing, would you say? So I think Goethe was a really particular example of that, like maybe one of the more fleshed out examples of this. But 
I mean, even going back to Renaissance times, there's this integration, like see it in Leonardo working in art and science, and uh, that carries over into Goethe's time a little bit more. Like there's some specialization going on there as well in different areas. But uh, an English an example from the English is uh, Charles Darwin's grandfather, uh, Erasmus Darwin, who also worked in science, but also wrote poetry, but is more specifically about uh, science. So he wrote some poems about how to, the names of the plants and things like this. And these were more educational and Goethe's a little different because his science wasn't necessarily always tied into his poetry and other work. But um, it was actually his writings that sort of caught the eye of, um, I guess, one of his like patrons sure. later. Yeah, so after Werther was like a international hit, then the uh, Duke at Weimar, which was a small uh, duchy within Germany. This was before Germany was united. Okay. Um, so they're kind of separate, separate small kingdoms still. A lot of that was going on. Uh, so he invited Goethe to his court as uh, uh, an advisor. Um, Goethe had gone to school, studied law, so that was kind of his main area of study. Um, but more his, the reason the Duke invited him was because of his literary fame and wanted to support that in Goethe, but also gave him different tasks. And one of those tasks was to create this uh, court garden, which Goethe had to study. So you just... Oh, sorry. He he basically just uh, um, hired him. Said, "Yeah, I like your writing, and you know, we've got a bunch of other things you could do here. And since you seem to be like a very well-rounded guy, I mean, sure, we'll and, just give you a lot of opportunities." Right, and it would bring the Duke notoriety too for having uh, such yeah, sure. a famous person at his court. So. Sure. So had Goethe at this point done any science writing, or was this? pre-science writing for him. This, Yeah, he really didn't get into scientific writings until he was at Weimar. Um, he had done a little animal morphology, specifically on uh, skull, uh, skull forms, and, and then went into plant morphology a little bit after that. Um, so, so he ended up being in charge of the royal garden? Yes. Okay. Can you tell us, how did that come... How did that end up coming about? Uh, well, having a court garden was kind of one of the rages at the time if you were had your own kingdom, if you're that lucky. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that was after. Yeah, I think because of Linnaeus was probably one of the big pushes behind that. So you wanted like a scientific kind of garden to represent different, uh, to yeah, display different plants from if you were lucky from around the world at that time. So Goethe was in charge of organizing and kind of naming the plants. So this kind of also led him into the work of Linnaeus. Okay. And then I think maybe some listeners wouldn't be familiar, but Linnaeus was uh, the father of uh, modern taxonomy, I think, as we know it, right? Yeah. But uh, Goethe had sort of a different uh, philosophical approach, and that's sort of, you know, what you're looking at as like a contrast from Linnaeus. Sure. So, yeah, Linnaeus's classification specifically regarding plants just picked up very specific plant parts to categorize plants. And even Linnaeus acknowledged it wasn't a natural system, like it was very much an artificial system, and he was hoping for a more natural system. 
and I kind of look at Goethe's efforts as a step in that direction. Um, so he, instead of just picking out particular parts of the plan, he tried to describe the whole plant as best he could as like an integrated organism where each like leaf and petal, uh, uh, sepal, all the different organs that they were familiar with and working with at, at that time, at least in flowering plants, that they at least had some kind of ideal relationship that could was expressed in the body of the plant. Okay. Whereas Linnaeus was more just interested in like just the petals or something, you know, one right. singular. Uh, yeah, it's one of, I can't remember, I should have checked before I came in. Is it either the stamens or the pistils? Like okay. just counting the different. But he's just like, I got so many other plants and other things to classify. Like I, right. I just, you know, I, I'm just going to focus on this one thing rather than, or maybe it, it probably, I don't know, was it even a conscious decision oh, I'm from sure, him? I'm sure or? it was. I okay. mean, because he knew it was artificial system, but yeah. I think just his project was so humongous, basically yeah, wanting okay. to classify every living thing in the world. Yeah. And, not even even non-living things like minerals. Huh. So he was just so prolific in classifying. I think just finding a quick and dirty way of sorting yeah. things was his main object at that point. Okay. Another contrast between Goethe and Linnaeus was this idea of the cultivating the senses. Sure. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that side of things? So this is maybe more of a modern interpretation of Goethe, and that kind of gets into my current dissertation research. Um, there's specifically one group in the 20th century that kind of focus, they're, call themselves Goethean science among many other names, so they really look at Goethe for methods and how to approach the natural world. Uh, and they really kind of hold on to this holistic aspect that is in Goethe's uh, plant morphology. So, they apply that to plants, but also look at animal, take a, a bit of his animal morphology as well, too. Um, and this, yeah, there's a lot of, it. yeah. So, yeah, this kind of ties into philosophical movements in the 20th century, too, because early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century is the movement of phenomenology kind of comes into uh, philosophy, but it's this, the emphasis there is the relation of the senses to thought and those interested in Goethe really pick up on this and even look to him maybe as an early him and Kant, uh, Immanuel Kant, another German philosopher, um, as kind of early proponents of this, but not as well fleshed out as it gets in the 20th century. Sure. Okay. So I think that touches on, gets to the heart of what you're actually studying, which is mm. not Goethe in particular, but rather his influence Sure. on subsequent generations sure. of plant pathologists or plant morphologists, I'm sorry. Um, so can you go into a little bit more detail about these particular morphologists and sort of what sort of influence they were deriving from him? Right. So, yeah, like I said, there's the Goethean science and they're looking more at Goethe for methods. And then another group I'm looking at is specifically uh, botanist and how they're responding to Goethe in the 20th century. And there's one botanist in particular that I focus on. Her name is Agnes Arbor. Uh, she worked through basically the first half of the 20th century. Um, did a lot of, and she herself was pretty well-rounded, did history and philosophy and uh, 
her last book was on mysticism, but it was all kind of grounded in her work on doing plant morphology, like very detailed and specific plant morphology. Um, and she identified these two different strands in plant morphology of pure morphology that's kind of more associated with Goethe that had to do with the senses and the thinking and applied morphology, which had to do applying morphology to uh, Darwinism and bringing that into play as kind of more of a guiding theoretical principle of how you should work out uh, what you're finding in the forms of plants. Okay. And so how are you uh, basically... Like what sort of research methods are you using to you're you're analyzing certain texts and piecing sure. together? Sure. Yeah. So historians basically, I mean, there's published books which are great and easy to get, or something you can just get through the library, which is kind of one of my starting points. Like you can get Goethe's work, pretty much anything in the library here, and same with Agnes Arbor. Uh, but then to get in kind of more into the details, you need to go to archives. So I spent last year going to some archives in, excuse me, Switzerland in England and Scotland, looking at different uh, botanists and biologists and going through their letters and notes that they took and even like uh, Arbor had a notebook she kept. She had two whole notebooks like on quotes of Goethe. So yeah, that's just all sense of kind of personal things that you wouldn't see otherwise, but they really give a glimpse into kind of what a scientist is thinking beyond what they're publishing. So yeah. it seems like that involves a lot of piecing together these disparate sort of unrelated pieces, and that represents part of the challenge for you in your own research. Um, how do you go about tracing back this correspondence between these different scientists? Is that, is that particularly challenging? It can be. I mean, a lot of times you'll just kind of find random letters. Uh, I've been lucky. I found at two different archives. One I went to in Pittsburgh is where Agnes Arbor's papers are. Um, And then in Scotland, there's Darcy Thompson's papers. And they were fairly close and so corresponded quite a bit. So I was able to get... But when you keep a, keep correspondence, you're only going to keep the ones you sent. There's very unlikely that you're going to have the copies that the person also sent to other people. So in the case of Arbor and Thompson, I have both sides because I because they both received the letters from each other. So there I'm able to kind of piece together their conversation a little bit better than I would if I just had one side of the conversation. And then throughout their conversation, their correspondence, you're getting a sense of how these influ- uh, these ideas sort of um, influenced them and what their thoughts were, and how. Um, and then I guess through their published works, you're sure. getting you know an idea of how their ideas developed as well. Sure. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things for me, at least, is you really get a sense of them as a person, like especially science writers. They're trying to be very objective and you know just present as much as they can what they're finding. But in these letters, you find how, uh, I guess, a lot of warmth going on between them. Yeah, and I bet which that is really nice to see. That's that sounds like it would be in it, like a, something that's pretty important, you know, yeah. because maybe some I don't know aspect of their personality might you know be more inclined to you know get into a certain sure. philosophy or something like that. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For 
yeah, I'll go back to Arbor. Her, um, she had a daughter, and Arbor wasn't necessarily religious, but it was, I mean, religion was still a big thing in England at that time. So she had to correspond with her mentor about, like, how am I going to raise my daughter uh, to be, you know, at least in an ethical way, because ethics was really tied up with religion still, um, yeah. but in a way that I feel comfortable with. And her mentor, who's ethel sergeant, you know, told her, you know, because sergeant was a Christian, so she kind of like, this is my perspective, but you, she believed in Arbor enough to, you know, be able to educate her daughter. And I feel like that little impetus, that little exchange that happened when Arbor's daughter was really young led to Arbor's later work, which was in more into philosophy and bringing out the what she found in morphology and bring it into philosophy and mysticism. So I want to go back to this idea around the early 20th century. And this was um, sort of with the rise of genetics and experimental sure. methods. And so this, in a sense, um, marked the descent of Gutian ap approach to plant morphology, but not necessarily because it, ended up coming back later, right? Can sure. you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, so genetics, Darwinism, and experimental methods all kind of contributed to overshadowing morphology at the end of 19th century, early 20th century. Um, and other historians have pointed this out, but they really mostly focus on uh, zoology. And so found something a little different going on in botany, uh, that they're still really interested in morphology um, and they're actually debating morphology. So the pure and applied morphologies that I referred to earlier that Arbor identified, those get reclassified in the 1930s as old and new morphology. So it's given this kind of progressive interpretation. And the new morphology is associated with Darwinism and incorporating those ideas. Um, and then, yeah, the, the kind of where... Goethe's ideas. So, yeah, there's kind of this low-level interest in Goethe going on throughout the 20th century. Um, but something that is interesting that I haven't quite touched on too much is the role of mathematics. Um, and so, and that Thompson is important in that as well, because that's where kind of Thompson builds on Goethe's morphology and wants to make it more scientific than it was before. But it was integrating mathematics into morphology was really complicated early on. And so Alan Turing did a short paper with uh, Claude Wardlaw, who's a botanist, um, to try to integrate or update Thompson's ideas in the mid 20th century. And that still didn't quite take on until maybe the late 60s, 1970s, when computers really took off. And then you see this more, much more interest in morphology and mathematics. And then you kind of see those people there end up looking back to Goethe again as kind of an early uh, forerunner of what they're trying to do with his interest in morphology. So what you're seeing is sort of like a, you know, after Goethe's ideas had um, been out for a while and then, you know, this uh, um, sort of increase in, you know, awareness about genetics or maybe some other, um, you know, as... I guess maybe I guess 
science progressed in a certain way towards more a reductionist uh, viewpoint. And then at some point, you know, people realize, oh, well, we can sort of uh, merge these two sort of, you know, right. holist versus sure. just reductionist. Right. Uh, and it wasn't just uh, maybe perspectives, but even methods, like, because genetics is really lab, like a laboratory-based kind of thing. So if you're kind of getting away from the how senses and thought are relating and like really looking at focusing on that area of like what science can be then yeah i wanted to get back to another question about sort of uh goethe's idea of like the merging of senses and thought and it seemed to me like that the most um or i guess the the most obvious way maybe to um, apply that to say plant morphology, something like that would be, you know, you would look and you'd observe the form of the whole plant. And I guess it would just be a, like a visual way of, uh, a visual sensory interpretation, but were there other, um, sensory interpretations? I mean, you mentioned color as I guess a, a different categorization or any other mm -hmm. sensory inputs that he used as well. Uh, well, yeah, Goethe was also interested in color theory. So he, did not like Newton's interpretation of colors. So that's kind of where that came in. Uh, but yeah, I mean, morphology and Goethe's work was pretty vision based. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't, I mean, I can imagine it being applied to other senses as well, but I think vision is probably the most direct and straightforward. Mm -hmm. Unless he went around, I don't know, trying to taste the plants or anything. Yes, for sure. Um, I mean, yeah, so that, yeah. <laughs> So one thing this touches on um, is this connection between philosophy and science, which is really intrinsic to, seems like it's intrinsic to Goethe's approach towards morphology. And um, can you speak to the nature of how these philosophical na questions are embedded into our system okay. a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So I went to undergrad, I was a philosophy major and... I was kind of introduced to the Western canon of philosophers um, like Descartes, Spinoza, uh, Berkeley, uh, Kant. Um, and so later on when I'm doing, went into the history science program, I realized we were kind of going over very similar ground and even the same names were coming up and realized looking back that actually a lot of modern Western philosophy is actually trying to really work on grounding scientific well not just scientific because they're also working in ethics and other areas but just really finding the the surest ground for that we can base our knowledge on and so this inevitably comes up into looking at science and yeah some of even like Descartes did his own science who he not only was a philosopher but kind of the Cartesian coordinate system is was his idea yeah, after him. it seems like we take that things like that for granted now. I mean, well, yeah, we were all taught that in you know school or whatever. But sure. yeah, you know, when, when it comes to actually first lying the foundational thought that you know the rest of I guess empirical science is sort of based on, and then you know using different methods that have come along. Right. You know, it's, it's sort of like pretty profound. I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty fun too. <laughs> So that's interesting. You actually started in philosophy as an undergrad. So that's sort of how you approach this is more from a 
philosophical point of view, would you say? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of my more natural disposition, I think. And so how did you go from the philosophical, uh, philosophy side of things toward wanting to study history of science or specifically? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, after I finished my undergrad, I kind of took a long time off, uh, and I was continued to pursue my interest in philosophy and that once in a while would get me into science. Uh, and I found eventually I ran upon Goethe's botanical work. So specifically his metamorphosis of plants and some of the modern interpretations of that. Uh, and another interest I had was meditation, which I'd been doing since my undergrad too, as well. And some of the people that were, uh, interpreting Goethe in the 20th century were doing it very, in a very meditative way since it's so, since you could easily base it on, uh, senses and thinking. So for there, I started doing my own plant studies, which were basically meditative and I would, you know, observe, I was still in Illinois at this time. So I observed like a trillium in the spring over the course of its life, kind of going back to the same spot once or twice a week and kind of doing a little sketches and things and seeing how it had developed and did the same thing with the, the American Lotus. And yeah, I realized I had never really been interested in biology before. Um, or plants specifically, even though they were, they're everywhere. Um, but after I started doing that, I started noticing plants a lot more and I felt like my senses were a little more attuned to the different forms and plants and these things were popping out to me a lot more. So I felt like there's really something powerful going on there that, you know, I, I think can help if it was kind of in our education a little bit more that we'd spend time thinking and observing and thinking about what we're observing and kind of really get a clear picture of what we're looking at. Um, especially in the natural world it can help build bridges to between, you know, us as humans and other forms of life that are not human at all. And I think plants are kind of one of the weirdest forms of life there is on this planet at least. Mm-hmm. And cool. so you pursued a master's degree yeah. here at OSU and your work was related to sort of what you're doing now? Sure. Yeah. So there I basically laid, once I got here, I was interested in Goethe. And so I just kind of wanted to get more into what his thoughts were directly. Um, so I did my master's thesis looking into his botany uh, and a few possible impl- applications for it in natural aesthetics and in uh, in a particular education center in New York that had been using his ideas in, uh, in science education. And then I realized that I wanted to expand kind of more on that last part and see kind of what Goethe, what happened to Goethe in the 20th century more broadly. And so that led me to my uh, PhD research. Very cool. And then your undergrad is also, or your uh, master's program is also here at Oregon State. Correct. Is that correct? Yeah, I did. Okay. Interplus- interdisciplinary studies here. Okay. So, yeah. Hmm. So, following your graduate work, do you want to stay in the academic system or what do you see yourself doing after this? Yeah, I'm going to 
try best I can to get a, a job teaching history of science. There's not a whole lot of departments around the country, but um, yeah, I'll see what I can find. I'm also really interested in doing science writing. Um, I've tried doing that locally here a little bit for the advocate once in a while. Um, so yeah, I think one of those directions I'd, I'd really like to do. Yeah, we always need good communicators of yeah. science to the public. That's very important. true. Very important. All right, so we're coming to the end of our interview portion of the show, and we have a couple of traditions that we like to um, we like to have. Um, the first one being a piece of advice that you have for another graduate student or someone looking at going into graduate school, or your previous self. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Say, make sure you really want to do it, first of all, and that you really love what you're doing because a lot of other things can come up and outside that can maybe get in the way a little bit. And I think kind of going along that, build really good support network, support networks outside of school even, not just inside, but so you have places to go outside that are really supportive and nourishing to you as well so you don't get kind of... You know, I find myself I can get drained yeah. fairly easily if I'm just focusing on my research. Yeah, absolutely. I think we can definitely relate to that as well. Yeah, most definitely. So then, our uh, second tradition that we do is uh, we have you uh, pick a song. So you've picked okay. a song for us, uh, and maybe uh, if if there's any reason why you picked it, or if you want to um, explain a little bit more about it, you can do that too. So what have you picked? So I can't remember the name of the song. It's, the band is Mum. Yeah. Which, the, the colorful stab wound. Colorful stab wound. Yeah. yeah. All right. It's a weird title. Uh, the song's very nice, though. So. Uh, this is from an album I listen to while I'm writing sometimes, and uh, I seem to be attracted to a few bands from Iceland, and this is one of them. Ooh. 